Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. We are just so incredibly excited to jump into today's case discussion. But before we do, we just wanted to take a moment and reflect on what a journey Cardio Nerds has been for all of us. As many of you know, we launched the show in December and just were so overwhelmed with the amount of tremendous feedback and support from you. This marks our first episode after 100,000 downloads of the show. And this is a benchmark that we are celebrating together with all of you. Since launch, we have had 82 voices on the show and our YouTube channel. Our website, which collates all the podcast episodes, YouTube videos, tutorials, and so much more, has been accessed in 120 countries. We just cannot thank you all enough. Simply speaking, the existence of the Cardinals is not possible without the incredible support from our mentors, colleagues, and listeners. As an education platform, it really is a collective owned by the community at large. And for that, the four of us, Dan, Kareen, Heather, and I are eternally grateful for your support. We are especially indebted to Reza Menashe of the Clinical Problem Solvers for giving us the initial push to dive into this adventure and the Cleveland Clinic Foundation's Alumni Association for their very generous educational grant to support our ongoing growth. When Reza first encouraged us to do this, we couldn't imagine having the time or the support. Eventually, and I should say skeptically, we decided to produce a five-episode series to see if it was even feasible for our busy lives as fellows and parents. But here we are. 30 episodes later, and still going strong. Well, I guess I should say 31 if you include this one. Speaking of which, in the current episode, we go through our comprehensive CardioNerds approach to myocarditis with just five foundational principles. We end with a very special message from two surprise guests, and this sets the stage for our next episode. Just remember that this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. Some details were changed to protect privacy, but out of the respect for the patient, the rest is told exactly as it occurred. Cardio nerds, anyone up for a coffee break? Always. I'm in. Oh man, I have just the place to go. All right, guys, take it away. I'll go get us some coffee. Guys, I've got to tell you about a crazy case that I had a while back. As you'll see, it's a case that has been completely perspective altering and career bending for me. And I think about this patient all the time, him and actually his entire family. Do tell, especially now that we're in a private area with no risk of HIPAA violation. Wink, wink. (laughs) Okay. At the time, the patient was a 35-year-old man with no past medical history. He was feeling well, rocking at his job, and was building a beautiful family with his wife, who was midway through a pregnancy. Four days prior to admission, he developed headaches and diffuse body aches with fatigue. Now, he also had large volume diarrhea, nausea, and repeated bouts of vomiting. On the day of presentation, he developed a fever to 102.6 Fahrenheit while at home. Wow, this sounds like a pretty acute and diffuse process. Fever and systemic illness in a previously healthy young man already has me thinking about infectious etiologies rather than autoimmune or autoinflammatory. Though at the back of my mind, there are non-infectious causes for fever, fatigue, and diarrhea like 
inflammatory bowel disease and thyrotoxicosis. But right now, definitely infection, infection, infection. Yeah, he was feeling really crappy. His wife insisted that he seek medical attention in the hospital and she helped him get into the car and they started driving to their local ED. En route, the patient lost consciousness and slumped over for about a minute, but he woke up spontaneously. His vital signs in the local ED were notable for sinus tachycardia to 140s, blood pressure of 100 over 65 millimeters of mercury, and his temperature was 39.3 Celsius, which is 102.7 Fahrenheit. ECG showed sinus tachycardia, a right bundle branch block with a right axis deviation. Lab work was notable for a troponin eye level of 87.7 nanograms per milliliter. He was treated with four liters of IV fluids, empiric antibiotics, and transferred to our hospital. Oh, nice. Looks like I got back just at the right time. There's a lot to unpack here, but I'm totally building off of Heather's initial impressions. The episode of syncope and tachycardia are screaming alarm bells here. Heather, let's break down syncope first, and then we can build it from there. Yes, let's do it. I usually break it down into four big buckets. The first bucket is orthostatic syncope, which can be from volume loss, autonomic dysfunction, and certain meds like tamsulosin. He may be volume down given his acute illness, especially with the diarrhea. Second bucket is reflex syncope, which is a transient autonomic response with loss of heart rate and or blood pressure and can be from carotid bulb hypersensitivity or a typical vasovagal response, which can you know, occur spontaneously or in response to situations like seeing blood. Third big bucket is cardiac arrhythmic, which includes things like bradyarrhythmias and tachyarrhythmias, which are often described as sudden loss of consciousness without a warning and without a prodrome. And the fourth bucket, last but not least, is cardiac mechanical causes, which are syncopal events from specific cardiac structural abnormalities that result in obstruction of cardiac output. Valvular, like aortic stenosis, myocardial, like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or severe heart failure. Vascular, like pulmonary embolism, pulmonary hypertension, aortic dissection, and pericardial, like an effusion or constriction. Perfect. Now let's tie that into the rest of his presentation. The tachycardia is certainly ominous and can be a response to systemic hypoperfusion and or a hyperadrenergic state. Probably both. Now when I was in the Bayview CICU, Dr. Steve Shu. Hopkins heart failure attending, who was featured in episode 15, teaching us all about LVADs, once came up to me and said, hey, Amit, what's the scariest rhythm in the CCU? And of course, I said V-fib. He said, now, you know, V-fib, we have a plan for that. The scariest rhythm for me is sinus tachycardia. And I'm certainly worried about this patient with a sinus tachycardia. When tackling a case in general, it's helpful to latch onto the most specific finding. And here, that's the troponin. Dan, what's your approach to troponemia? Ugh, Amit, I thought you'd never ask. Unlike CK, troponin is a specific myocardial biomarker, so we cardinerns just love it. But not every troponin leak is an acute coronary syndrome, so let's break it down. Remembering that coronary perfusion pressure is the pressure gradient that's required to push the goodies such as oxygen and nutrients across the capillary bed so that the myocytes can take part of the feast. Now remember, much of the blood flow down the coronary arteries occurs during diastole when the aortic valve cusps are closed and blood in the aorta flows down those coronaries and the coronary capillaries are not being squeezed shut by the systolic pressures that the left ventricle generates. The gradient across the left ventricular capillary bed is going to be the difference between the diastolic blood pressure of the coronary arteries and the left ventricular end diastolic blood pressure, which is the pressure in the left ventricle during that same time. 
To highlight this concept, we can think about the following example. Say a patient has a proximal left anterior descending artery, acute occlusion, that leads to an anterior ST elevation MI and makes his entire anterior wall acutely akinetic, resulting in hypotension and heart failure. We know that the territory of the LAD is going to be ischemic because of the STEMI, but the myocardium supplied by the right coronary artery and the circumflex arteries are also going to become ischemic. The diastolic blood pressure will be low because of the shock, and the left ventricular and diastolic blood pressure will be elevated because of the heart failure. Since the coronary perfusion pressure, which is diastolic blood pressure minus left ventricular and diastolic blood pressure, will be low, all of the myocardium will become ischemic, leading to worsening hypotension and increased left ventricular and diastolic pressure, and this cycle will continue until there is some sort of intervention. Dan, that is a great way of thinking about coronary perfusion. Thank you for explaining that. I know when I'm admitting patients from the emergency room to the hospital with a positive troponin, I think of things broadly in this way. Troponin leaks into the bloodstream when there's myocyte death from one, supply-demand mismatch, or two, direct myocyte injury from something else. To get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty, if we're talking about supply-demand mismatch, you can have poor supply, aka poor perfusion of the coronaries, which can be from things like a type 1 MI with acute plaque rupture, what we traditionally think of as acute coronary syndrome, but it can also be from things like spontaneous coronary artery dissection, aka SCAD, which really deserves its own episode entirely. So we'll talk about that in the future. And along with supply-demand mismatch, you can also have increased demand with or without baseline obstructed coronary arteries, meaning that the heart is working harder and so needs more oxygen out of that blood. Increased demand can be from increases in afterload, increases in heart rate or contractility, or increases in end diastolic pressure, aka increased wall stress. So things that increase afterload can be hypertension. Think if we double aortic blood pressure, then the left ventricle has to double its systolic pressure working more over time. And things like aortic stenosis can increase afterload as well. And then talking about tachycardia, which can be sinus tachycardia or atrial fibrillation with RBR, that can also cause increased demand. And you can have things that increase your left ventricular and diastolic pressure, like valvular disease, such as aortic stenosis or cardiomyopathies, which increase your wall stress and increase your demand. So that's supply demand. And then you can also have just direct myocyte injury from things like infiltration of amyloid or other infiltrative cardiomyopathies, uh, myocarditis, which can be related to a virus or cytokine storm or a lot of other etiologies, or trauma. Heather, that was a great breakdown of causes of troponemia, but let me just throw in a wrench and mention as a sideline the concept of minoca or myocardial infarction with non-obstructive coronary arteries. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about this whole entity, but generally it's the clinical diagnosis of an MI based on biomarker trend, maybe even a cardiac MRI, but with a coronary angiogram that at least on face value does not show obstruction. So whenever I think about the term minoca, I always remember back to a very passionate discussion I had with my co-fellow David Niebuhr in our fellow's office, one of my favorite places in the hospital. And his major qualm with the term was that it is so nebulous with a changing definition and a heterogeneous hodgepodge of underlying pathology. Moreover, it's really just a descriptive term. Again, MI with a negative coronary angiogram. It's not a diagnosis. So I'll underline David's point that minoca or no minoca, you should just describe what's happening, but really focus on using your diagnostic arsenal to make a true diagnosis. I'll direct our listeners to a wonderful AHA scientific statement on the matter in circulation 2019 by Tamis Holland et al. Overall, 
Taking this back to our patient, acute coronary syndrome is less likely in a young guy without traditional risk factors. Dan, Ahmed, and Heather, that's a great explanation of troponemia. Public service announcement for everyone. Troponinitis is not always an MI. Think through this breakdown and get to the heart of the problem. (laughs) Kareen, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Getting back to our case, the key elements of this presentation are an inflammatory state, syncope, and myocardial injury. Guys, this three-way Venn diagram is a prototypical trifecta for myocarditis. Now, let's not anchor on this just yet, and let's make sure that we include the other life-threatening things on our differential diagnosis, like sepsis, pulmonary embolism, and acute coronary syndrome, because after all, missing any of these would be hard to forgive. Yes, I love that differential. Given that this patient has systemic symptoms that really point to an inflammatory state, I agree with you, Amit. This would definitely fit in nicely with a myocarditis. Kareen, those were our thoughts as well. When he arrived to our cardiac ICU, his blood pressure was 95 over 60 millimeters of mercury, heart rate 106 beats per minute, respiratory rate 23 breaths per minute, satting 95% initially on room air. He looked super nervous and incredibly soaked the sheets diaphoretic. We could not appreciate any cervical lymphadenopathy. His JVP was measured at around 10 centimeters. He was tachycardic without any appreciated rubs or murmurs. He had mild bi-basilar crackles. He had trace lower extremity edema in his legs. And his honestly, his lower extremities were quite cool to the touch. No rashes were noted on a full skin survey. His white blood count was 9, hemoglobin 14, platelets 184, creatinine 1.1. Troponin I was now checked at our institution and was 31 nanograms per milliliter and trended downwards to 27. CK peak was 625 units per liter. Micro studies were sent and included a rapid HIV test, syphilis, Coxsackie, adenovirus, Lyme disease that all ultimately returned negative. Bacterial cultures were negative as well. TSH was normal. A chest x-ray showed pulmonary vascular congestion and a small right pleural effusion. A central line was placed in the right internal jugular vein. Given the troponin and suspicion for cardiac dysfunction, we snagged a central venous sat, which was 42%. My, my, Dan, this sounds like a pretty impressive case so far. Your patient had a lot of GI upset with nausea and vomiting, and those symptoms can certainly be related to an underlying inflammatory illness, which sounds viral with this overall picture. But let's remember, with his cardiac injury, his physical exam, and low CVP set, I'd really be worried about RV failure and low cardiac output, which often causes these vague abdominal complaints. Thinking back to his global perfusion, I know you mentioned he was cool on exam, but can you also tell us about his mental status and urinary output? Absolutely, Ahmed. An excellent point. Our patient's mental status is actually fairly reasonable. He was alert and really asking us to help him out with his profound nausea. On exam, he was definitely cold and clammy. We also noticed that he had not put out an ounce of urine since arrival to our hospital, and that was also the case while he was in the emergency room before he came over. Wow. So now we're really dealing with a young man who presents with an acute inflammatory syndrome, has markedly elevated troponin, and is exhibiting signs and symptoms of hypoperfusion and congestion. We need to get a jumpstart on both supportive management and simultaneously and rather quickly making the diagnosis to address the underlying culprit. I'd love to learn y'all's approach to cardiogenic shock in the CCU at some point, but let's get started on diagnosing the underlying problem first. I totally agree that myocarditis sounds like the prime suspect here. 
You got it, friends. Let's return to fundamentals of hemodynamics and approach to cardiogenic shock on one of our upcoming CardioNerds Coffee powwows. But for now, let's dive into the fiery world of myocarditis. Our hashtag CardioNerds comprehensive approach to myocarditis is founded on just five basic principles. Number one, build a clinical suspicion for myocarditis, including, and importantly, excluding other possibilities. Number two, decide if an endomyocardial biopsy is necessary. Number three, manage the acute cardiac injury. Number four, manage the chronic cardiac sequelae. And number five, treat the myocarditis. Nice breakdown, Amit. Really helps make sure we don't miss anything in approaching a case of possible myocarditis. But it all starts with step number one. You can't help a patient with myocarditis if you don't think about myocarditis. Particularly for myocarditis, a high index of suspicion is key because of the variability in presentation, which spans from the very dull to the raging firestorm. On the dull end, a patient can be relatively asymptomatic, but on the opposite extreme, these patients can be extremely sick, coming in with acute heart failure, including cardiogenic shock, electrical instability with both bradyarrhythmias, including heart block and tachyarrhythmias, sudden death, and associated pericarditis with tamponade. These latter presentations, especially with associated shock, are by definition fulminant myocarditis. Right at the outset, this patient's syncope is concerning for a fulminant presentation. Most patients will have a viral prodrome since viral myocarditis is the most common cause, as well as constitutional symptoms reflecting the underlying immune activation. Specific symptoms are variable and nonspecific, such as fevers, rash, body aches, fatigue, respiratory or GI complaints. This also fits with your patient, Dan. Kareen, 100%. Our patient for sure was looking more and more like a fulminant presentation, especially with his initial central venous O2 sat, cool extremities, and zero urinary output. His lactate was initially 2.4 millimole per liter, but increased to 4.6 over just several hours. Because we were con- Yeah, it was bad. Because we were concerned about mixed or cardiogenic shock, we placed a PA catheter, which showed in standard units a right atrial pressure of 15 RV pressure, 33 over 12, PA, 32 over 23, with a mean of 26, a wedge pressure of 23. Cardiac index by thermodilution method was 2.2. Systemic vascular resistance index, or SVRI, was 2,400. And pulmonary vascular resistance, or PVR, was 0.6. Our PA sat returned at 49.6%. Okay, I'll take a crack at interpreting these numbers. His right heart, left heart, and pulmonary pressures are all elevated and proportionally elevated, which to me makes me think that it's more consistent with heart failure and less so sepsis or right-sided primary issues like pulmonary embolism. His cardiac index is low, again, consistent with heart failure with a low flow state. His pulmonary vascular resistance, PVR, is normal, which is reassuring that he doesn't have underlying pulmonary hypertension. His systemic vascular resistance index is elevated, probably compensatory in the setting of poor cardiac output. And finally, the pulmonary arterial SAT of 49.6% is low, consistent with a low flow state with high peripheral oxygen extraction. All of this in a patient who is showing signs and symptoms of hypoperfusion is pointing to cardiogenic shock for me. Given the discussion we've had so far, his presentation overall does sound like myocarditis, but let's definitely rule out other life-threatening causes. So far, infectious workup is negative and thyroid levels are normal. 
Bravo, Heather. That was just a marvelous interpretation of his. That was awesome. And, you know, it really confirms that our dear patient is in cardiogenic shock. Now we need to figure out why and treat it, of course. A big part of step one in building our suspicion for myocarditis is making sure it's not one of the other more common causes of cardiac injury with shock. We should still think about pulmonary embolism, structural heart disease like HCM, which was subclinical until he got infected, stress cardiomyopathy, endocarditis with acute valvular pathology, pericardial effusion with tamponade, and coronary causes. These all fall under the supply-demand imbalance bucket of troponemia. While he had few risk factors for atherosclerosis, remember, not all coronary ischemia is from atherosclerotic plaque rupture. You can have thrombotic coronary embolism, coronary dissection, coronary aneurysms, vasculitis, congenital anomalies, and so much more. All in all, I'm about to fall off my seat, Dan, for you to tell us about the echo and coronary imaging in this gentleman. Beauty. Yes, this takes me back to how we organized cardiac pathology back in episode seven when we discussed cardiac amyloid. Let's think about the five failures, coronary, ventricular, valvular, electrical, and pericardial failures. All of these are critical to think about when knocking off the differential diagnosis. In our case, we ended up seeing dynamic ECG changes, and given everything else going on, we decided to pursue left heart catheterization with coronary angiography for all the reasons that Ahmed outlined. And guess what? It showed normal coronary arteries. The initial echo showed a normal left ventricular size and wall thickness. The ejection fraction was 40%. There was severe hypokinesis of the basal to mid-septum and infralateral walls. The other left ventricular walls were hypokinetic. There was also a small pericardial effusion without any evidence of tamponade. Repeated echo several hours later by myself in the unit in the setting of worsening blood pressure and clinical decline showed a left ventricular ejection fraction of 20 to 25% severe global hypokinesis with a left ventricle average global longitudinal strain of negative 5%. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh wow. Yeah. Seeing reduction in systolic motion with normal LV size and wall thickness really speaks to this acute process that's unfolding before our eyes. Yeah, I totally agree. We actually toyed with getting a cardiac MRI, but it became quickly apparent that we were not going to be able to move the patient and get him in an MRI scanner for a period of time without jeopardizing his safety. So we quickly abandoned that idea. But in general, for our listeners, cardiac MRI is incredibly useful for the diagnosis of myocarditis because you could see edema and inflammation. This is such an important topic that we definitely have plans to discuss this in a future Pulse Check episode down the road. This is a pretty impressive presentation, and I can see that the indication for myocarditis is really quite high. I've been looking for an approach to frame myocarditis, and actually, cardio nerds, this is the perfect time to discuss that. What's an approach that you find useful? Love it. There are so many ways to classify myocarditis. It really depends if you're an academic diagnostician, a visual pathologist, or a pragmatic clinician. The diagnostician will create a beautiful schema outlining the ideology, so let's start there. Broadly speaking, causes of myocarditis can be split into infectious and non-infectious. For the infectious causes, think about all those critters our micro-nerd pals like Saman love talking about. Number one, and by far and away the most common, viruses. These are definitely the most common in developed countries and include enteroviruses like Coxsackie B, adenovirus, HHV6, parvovirus B19, and so much more. The SARS-CoV-2 virus causing COVID-19 is an emergent cause. But let's not forget the other micronerd buckets. So number two, bacterial causes like our rickettsial diseases, spirochetes like Lyme, mycobacterial, and even the typical pyogenic bacteria. Number three, protozoa like Chagas disease from Trypanosoma cruziae. Number four, fungal diseases like aspergillosis and ocardia. And finally, number five, parasites like Echinococcus. 
Now, that's a lot of love for our micro-nerds, but all in all, the viral ideologies are the most common. Let's round out the diagnostician schema with the non-infectious causes, which broadly include immunologic and toxic. The immunologic causes are broad and can be split into, one, myocardial involvement of a systemic autoimmune process like lupus, scleroderma, Bichette's, Kawasaki's disease, and sarcoidosis. Two, eosinophilic syndromes, which can be primary like HES or EGPA, or secondary from a hypersensitivity reaction to some trigger like a medication, cancer, or infection. Endomyocardial fibrosis is a primary idiopathic eosinophilic process that belongs here too. Acute eosinophilic necrotizing myocarditis is the feared eosinophilic myocarditis that often presents with fulminant heart failure or sudden death and is most frequently caused by a drug hypersensitivity, but can also result from HES, EGPA, and other eosinophilic syndromes. Three, there are three special immunologic causes that warrant attention. Giant cell myocarditis is a special beast on its own as a cardiac-specific autoantigen response characterized by giant cells and usually occurs with a fulminant course. Immune checkpoint inhibitors have been a breakthrough in oncology and have had a tremendous impact on cancer therapy by taking off the usual breaks on the immune system, which can then freely target cancer cells. But unfortunately, the immune system can also target normal cells, including myocytes, making myocarditis one of the many IRAEs or immune-related adverse events. Finally, heart transplant rejection caused by an alloantigen response is an important form of myocarditis in transplant recipients. Toxic myocarditis is simply a direct toxic effect from a host of substances, including medications like chemotherapeutic agents, illicit drugs, heavy metals, endogenous molecules like light chain amyloid, and other substances. So to summarize, the diagnostician's approach to myocarditis is infectious, immunologic, and toxic. Don't worry, this will all make for a beautiful diagnostic schema that we will make available to you on our website. Let's think about this from a visual pathologist's perspective. Generally, there's a lot of overlap in the pathfindings from different types of myocarditis, but the broad categories under the microscope include lymphocytic, giant cell, sarcoidosis and other granulomatous forms, eosinophilic and neutrophilic. The etiologic to pathologic associations aren't one-to-one or strict, but the histology can be helpful with thinking through the etiology, prognosis, and treatment response. For instance, lymphocytic myocarditis is the most common subtype, is usually associated with viruses or autoimmune disorders, less likely to respond to immunosuppression, but it generally has a favorable long-term prognosis. However, on the other hand, giant cell myocarditis is uncommon, frequently fatal, but more likely to respond to immunosuppression. So the information we get from our pathologists can be really helpful. Beyond basic histology, pathologists are well-equipped with several tools to assist in the diagnosis. Immunohistochemistry helps better characterize the inflammatory infiltrates and increases the diagnostic yield of biopsies, and molecular phenotyping helps aid in the definition of specific infectious agents. The work pathologists do has been incredibly helpful to better understand these diseases. That's awesome, Amit. The diagnostic schema and the pathologist slides are super-duper helpful. But let's turn to the pragmatic clinician who's got the patient in front of them before they have any path or definitive etiology. From the clinician's perspective, at this point in the case, it's helpful to make one simple but absolutely critical distinction. Is this fulminant myocarditis or is this not fulminant myocarditis? That is the question. The answer makes a night and day difference of how you proceed and what you do next. 
the 2020 AHA scientific statement defines fulminant myocarditis as, I quote, as sudden and severe inflammation of the myocardium resulting in myocyte necrosis, edema, and cardiogenic shock. And our patient, by definition, has fulminant myocarditis. Importantly, fulminant myocarditis is a clinical syndrome, but it can arise from the many etiologies of the diagnostic schema, and it can have any of the different histologies under the pathologist's microscope. Okay, got it. Step number one isn't so bad. Simply put, we have successfully built our clinical suspicion for myocarditis based on the clinical presentation, cardiac imaging, and rolling out other diagnoses, of which acute coronary syndrome is the most common. In considering the causes and approach to myocarditis, there are three straightforward classification schemes. First, the etiology, second, the pathology, and third, the clinical presentation. So how do we put all of this together to take care of the patient? Heather, that is the crux of the question. The etiology, pathology, and clinical presentation are all interlinked, and especially for myocarditis, in guiding the diagnosis and treatment for the patients. This brings us to step number two. At this point in the case, Dan's team has conquered step number one for his patient in building a bulletproof suspicion for myocarditis. Now, in step number two, we have to decide as a team whether or not to take our patient for an endomyocardial biopsy. Is tissue the issue? Not always. Here's a mind twister. You only get an endomyocardial biopsy if the results will impact your management. The role of the endomyocardial biopsy in suspected myocarditis has always been an issue of debate. On the one hand, it's the gold standard, and as we've said, we can learn so much from the pathology. But on the other hand, it is invasive and does carry some risk although this is minimal in the right hands. More importantly, myocarditis can be patchy and the diagnostic yield may be low. You need multiple samples, you may need to go back for more, and may even need to get in from the LV because, as you know, we usually only get RV biopsies. In fact, it's estimated that you need up to 17 RV biopsy specimens for 80% sensitivity with traditional techniques. Thankfully, the advent of immunohistochemistry, electron microscopy, molecular typing, including viral genome amplification, and newer techniques like high-throughput microarray analysis will help improve sensitivity. To biopsy or not to biopsy? So the guidelines answer this question by recommending a biopsy in clinical situations when the yield is expectedly the greatest. Specifically, the AHA, ACC, ESC guidelines all give a class one recommendation to plunge those hungry bioptomes, and of course sterile ones, not the ones from Dr. Casper's wall from episode five, into that inflamed myocardium in two important situations. One, if you have a nuanced heart failure of less than two weeks duration with hemodynamic compromise, especially with a normal sized LV, or two, with nuanced heart failure of two weeks to three months duration with dilated LV and electrical instability or failure to respond to the usual care in one to two weeks. The idea is that these patients probably stand to benefit the most from an endomyocardial biopsy because identifying the underlying pathology will guide further management with regards to immunosuppression, antivirals, and prognosis. So Dan's patient has acute new onset heart failure with a normal left ventricular size and both hemodynamic and electrical instability. Sounds like a prime candidate for an endomyocardial biopsy. And knowing Dan, I know the patient got what he needed, and we're probably about to hear the pathology. Right again. The cardio nerd loves getting input from our path nerd colleagues, and we definitely decided to get that biopsy. But at the very beginning, we were hyper-focused on keeping him alive. 
Perfect. That brings us to our step number three. Manage the acute cardiac injury. The ABCs, friends, are still the ABCs in the CCU, or or rather, should I say CABs for circulation, airway, and breathing. Either way, remember, these patients can present with the scariest and most interesting of the presentations to the CCU. Cardiogenic shock, conduction disease with dangerous bradyarrhythmias, VTVF with sudden cardiac death, pericardial effusion with tamponade. So let's do everything we can to support the patient up front. Basic principles for keeping people alive apply for myocarditis as with any other process, including swan-guided management, vasoactive infusions, temporary mechanical circulatory support, and temporary pacing as needed. Management needs to be adjusted to the patient's response and trajectory and may very well involve ultimate, durable, LVAD, heart transplant, or hospice care depending on candidacy and patient preferences. Knowing the pathology will be especially helpful in deciding the ultimate long-term strategy, as some causes are more likely to resolve, whereas others tend not to. But regardless of the acute management, the principles are the same. And folks, we will return to fundamentals of shock management in a later episode, but here's how we managed our patient during those initial key moments of full-throttle CCU care. We recognize that this acute presentation and ensuing hemodynamic profile on admission, cold, wet, cardiogenic shock, evidence of end-organ hypoperfusion with aneuric renal failure, in conjunction with cardiac biomarker elevation, depressed ventricular function, and ECG abnormalities, all fit the clinical profile of fulminant myocarditis. His young age, new onset heart failure, cardiogenic shock, and electrical abnormalities meant that he met ACC-AHA indications for endomyocardial biopsy. IV dobutamine and IV nipride were started with initial improvement of his urinary output and stabilization of his hemodynamics. However, they really worsened overnight. His mixed venous O2 went down to 47%. Honestly, guys, it was a night of rapid decline with this intense nausea, electrical deterioration, and mechanical breakdown. And he continued to have nausea well into the morning. Wow, what a clinical course. This is all really making me miss my CCU days. Cardio nerds, I loved your breakdown of the acute management. And I'm processing what you said about long-term definitive options like LVAD and heart transplant. It really seems like these would be hard decisions to make in the acute setting when you really don't know how a patient will do. You're absolutely right, Heather. It's really difficult to know if a given patient will need these advanced strategies, but it's helpful to consider the overall natural history of myocarditis. Here again, pathology makes a huge difference. Lymphocytic myocarditis tends to have spontaneous resolution after the initial insult, whereas giant cell myocarditis or GCM or necrotizing eosinophilic myocarditis or NEM follow a very different course, unfortunately, with death or transplant being the prevailing outcomes. Avoiding delays in diagnosis and adequate aggressive management of shock are crucial here and are the reasons we stress the importance of having a high clinical suspicion in step one. Interesting fact, it may be that patients with lymphocytic myocarditis who develop a fulminant course may just be those with a very robust immune system. Their hyperactive immune response surely gets them into a heap of trouble with myocarditis and shock, but paradoxically, it may also help them be more effective in clearing the original viral culprit, which may be why some patients with lymphocytic myocarditis get over it without long-term problems. For patients who overcome the acute phase and avoid death or transplant, the possibilities are either complete resolution or chronic heart failure. It's helpful to review the classic pathologic stages of myocarditis. The foundations of how we understand pathophysiology of viral myocarditis come from the classic enterovirus model, beautifully described by Dr. Leslie Cooper in New England Journal of Medicine 2009. Stage 1 
direct injury from viral replication or toxin and innate immune response. Stage two, acquired immune response, including molecular mimicry. And finally, stage three, either recovery or persistent cardiomyopathy. In that last stage, the majority of cases will have viral clearance and downregulation of the immune response. On pathology, you may have complete resolution or varying degrees of replacement fibrosis. Alternatively, in a minority of cases, the patients may enter a more chronic phase of injury with persistence of viral particles and or the immune response resulting in cardiomyopathy and heart failure. This is the ultimate fate of about a third of cases. Interestingly, 10% of unexplained dilated cardiomyopathy may be from myocarditis. Perfect setup, Dan. This brings us to the fourth major pillar, manage the chronic cardiac sequelae. The data here is thin because of underdiagnosis and infrequency of myocarditis. But hey, the general principles of guideline-directed medical therapy of HEFREF, or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, still apply, including life-saving medications, EP devices, atrial fibrillation, ablation in selected patients, and structural cardiac interventions when appropriate. So just check out our heart failure series for review. Pacemakers and defibrillators may be particularly relevant in myocarditis, given that conduction disease and ventricular tachyarrhythmias are a prominent feature of this disease. All right, all right. Let's get to the heart of the problem, pun intended. Dan. (laughs) Dan, what did the path show? Kareen, ask and you shall receive. We got our patient through the initial shock with our aggressive supportive management. The final pathology showed an extensive polymorphous inflammatory cell infiltrate with marked myocyte injury. The infiltrate included lymphocytes, with extensive CD3 positivity, macrophages with extensive CD68 positivity, and some eosinophils and neutrophils. Of note, no giant cells were seen. The biopsy was negative for amyloid, glycogen deposits, fibroelastosis, and iron. The conclusion, lymphocytic myocarditis. Amazing. This brings us to the fifth and final pillar. You've got to treat the myocarditis itself. This depends heavily on the pathology, so getting to the heart of the path, also pun intended, (laughs) that never gets old, (laughs) Uh, was definitely an important step. To immunosuppress or not to immunosuppress, that is a new question. When it comes to treatment, different forms of myocarditis are, well, different. In the treatment of lymphocytic myocarditis, anti-TNF treatments have not been shown to improve outcomes, while agents against interleukin-1 and interleukin-17 are still currently under investigation. Steroids are commonly used in clinical practice, even though, as it turns out, there was no clinical benefit seen in the two RCTs that studied their use. However, there are two studies that tested the use of combined azathioprine with steroids that did in fact find improvements in ejection fraction and symptoms. While IVIG has been shown to be effective in children with lymphocytic myocarditis, that hasn't really panned out in adults. There are three ongoing trials in lymphocytic myocarditis testing prednisone-azathioprine combination, IVIG, and anakinra, and anti-interleukin-1, respectively. So conversely with giant cell myocarditis, if there's a high suspicion, we usually give a gram of solumedrol urgently before diagnostic testing because of how responsive it can be to immunosuppression and how early treatment really can change your clinical trajectory. But don't worry, steroids will not obscure the biopsy results. Once diagnosis is confirmed by biopsy, treatment entails a combination of high-dose steroids, a calcineurin inhibitor like cyclosporin, and an anti-metabolite like azathioprine. 
There also have been some reported benefits to use of cytolytic therapies such as purified rabbit-derived polyclonal IgG against human thymocytes or antithymoglobulin in the setting of life-threatening GCM. Mechanical circulatory support may be required either as a bridge to recovery or transplantation. Speaking of circulatory support, sometimes these patients will require biventricular support to stabilize them because of biventricular involvement and initially facilitate procedures like biopsy and catheterization. Unstable ventricular arrhythmias or high-grade intranodal blocks can serve as clues that bivy support will be needed. VA ECMO can often be a great option in these cases. But because they may need prolonged support, an alternative biventricular support strategy with upper vascular access may allow for physical therapy as we work out recovery or advanced options. We recently had a fulminant myocarditis patient who was crashed initially onto intraortic balloon pump with VA ECMO, but later transitioned to an axillary Impella 5.5 with a right IJ Protect Duo RVAD with great results. Unfortunately, unlike lymphocytic myocarditis, GCM rarely recovers after use of mechanical circulatory support. GCM patients often will require cardiac transplantation. Reassuringly, although there are high rates of early rejection, post-transplant survival is actually similar to those with other cardiomyopathies. However, due to the risk of recurrence after transplant, GCM patients are often maintained on lifelong low-dose steroids. For those patients who recover without the need for transplant, they'll often need to be maintained on low-dose immunosuppression long-term. With myocarditis in the setting of immune checkpoint inhibitors, treatment starts with immediately stopping the inciting therapy. We usually use high-dose steroids followed by a taper. Recommendations also include initiation of angiotensin receptor blockers or Secubitril Valsartan. We also sometimes need to consider device placement in these patients due to the risk of arrhythmias and particularly conduction disease with immune checkpoint inhibitors. With necrotizing eosinophilic myocarditis or NEM, which may be due to hypersensitivity reaction to certain drugs, it's again important to try and identify the precipitating cause and stop the exposure. Unlike GCM, this form of myocarditis will usually respond to high-dose steroids as well as the addition of agents like mycophenolate mofetil or azathioprine. Similar to GCM, mechanical circulatory support may be needed as a bridge to recovery, and in fact, this most commonly presents as a new onset BIV failure with rapid hemodynamic deterioration. These patients are prone to ventricular thrombi and arterial emboli, calling for the possible need for upfront prophylactic anticoagulation use. However, the appropriate strategy for anticoagulation remains unclear. Guys, this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. Getting back to my patient, for the cardiogenic shock, we initially attempted medical therapy with dobutamine and nitroprusside. However, it quickly became apparent that despite our greatest efforts, this was not enough to restore adequate perfusion. The patient continued to complain of profound nausea and was diaphoretic and began to have difficulty with mentation. He also was unable to lie flat. Given his low output state despite medical therapy, ECMO was initiated with a plan for a left ventricular vent strategy via impella placement. We'll get to this discussion at another time. His hospital and ECMO course was complicated by high transfusion requirements, hemolysis, and thrombocytopenia, rhabdomyolysis with acute kidney injury requiring dialysis. But I am so glad to tell you that months later, he left the hospital off dialysis and has made a complete full recovery. I'm literally getting goosebumps as I tell you this right now. We remain close over the years, and I wanted to share a message that his wife posted on the one-year anniversary from the day of presentation when they returned to the hospital to thank everyone in person. And this is what she wrote. Sometimes bad things happen. It isn't anyone's fault. They just happen. And sometimes you meet the most incredible people who get you through. We can never properly express our gratitude to the staff at the hospital, but we are sure we gave it our best shot today. 
Wow, that is such a powerful and special story and a great reminder of the value of the work we do in the hospital and the humanity in our work. So we can summarize five points of maximal impulse in approaching myocarditis. Number one, build the clinical suspicion for myocarditis. You need a high index of suspicion given the variable presentation and definitely need to keep a broad differential so you don't miss things like acute coronary syndrome. Number two, decide if an endomyocardial biopsy is necessary. This is most often obtained in fulminant presentations to look for pathologic findings of giant cell myocarditis or eosinophilic myocarditis because these findings will change management. Number three, manage the acute cardiac injury, which can range from initiating supportive care to treatment of shock, arrhythmias, and even tamponade. Number four, manage the chronic cardiac sequelae. Recovering from the acute phase of myocarditis doesn't necessarily mean smooth sailing. Some develop chronic heart failure, warranting GDMT, what we like to refer to as guideline-directed management and therapy, as defined by Dr. Randall Starling in episode 13. And last but not least, number five, treat the myocarditis. Immunosuppression is often started empirically in fulminant disease, but continuation really depends on what you find on pathology. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed our five-part approach to myocarditis. Visit www.cardionerds.com to find our myocarditis schematic. It's important to share in each other's successes, so please tell us what's making your heart flutter and send a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. Before we split like S2, enjoy this beautiful message from the real heroes of this episode, who of course consented to being recorded. My name is Charles Miller. I was the patient. My stay at the hospital, from what I remember, will always be embedded into my memory. The hospital staff was just amazing, from the ICU staff, to the doctors, to the nurses, to the anesthesiologists, to the x-ray techs, to everybody who was part of my case from the time I came into the hospital to the time I came out of the hospital. Physical therapists, occupational therapists, some of whom we still communicate with on an everyday basis. So they say some things happen for a reason. I think that definitely added to our community, our family community of people that brought us all together. And I, I, you know, I can't be more thankful for everybody who's part of our case that gave me an opportunity to meet my son and continue these memories with my, with my family. Um, hi, my name is Julie Miller and in fall of 2017, my husband Chaz Miller was a patient at Johns Hopkins. Our experience was made a lot better by the care that the staff showed for us because it's very scary, you know, from my perspective, right? Like I was just in entering the third trimester, being pregnant with my second child. I had a three-year-old at home. I had a 10-year-old stepdaughter with her mom and suddenly their dad is in this position where we don't know if he's gonna make it. And that is terrible on its own. And it could have been a lot worse if we hadn't been really like cared for by the hospital staff. I felt seen, I did not feel overlooked at all. I felt like people were looking at my husband as a person and the two of us as a family. And people really wanted not only to help save him, but they wanted to 
keep me informed. Everyone was pretty aware that I wanted to know what was going on so I could accurately communicate it to the rest of our extended family, all who were really, you know, distressed about this. And I wanted the information for myself so that I could prepare myself for what may lie in the future. Uh, and it felt really good to know that there were people who saw us and they allowed me to kind of share who he was and who we were. And I felt like he wasn't just a patient to them. He wasn't just a number. He wasn't just, you know, a list of illnesses and injuries. He was a person that they wanted to give life back to. They wanted him to be able to meet the son that he hadn't gotten to meet yet and they wanted him to be able to go and live the best life that he could and i can't say enough about nurses and the doctors even from there was a gentleman who cleaned the float who was like cleaning up and he would see me all the time and then kind of make jokes as i was getting more and more pregnant during the two-month period we were there and it was just like even that guy like right like he didn't have to talk to me at all but he was so kind to me like that's when a bad situation can become better and you learn a lot about how to care for other people people when they're in times of trouble. So very thankful that we got to learn that part about like people just helping people who were down. It was amazing. Dan? Dan, are you muted? God damn it. <laughs> damn it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The, okay. 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 <laughs> 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 <laughs>